Good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope that uh, satisfied our exercise requirement for the day. Still catching my breath. We're just, all right. I don't know how I'm out of breath from just playing the guitar, but wow. Um, when that crew, that the band gets back in, I want a round of applause only because we have been unbelievably blessed, have we not, over the past year of people filling in since we don't have a worship pastor. And they have graciously filled in way more than any other volunteer in the history of the church. And they're still not in. And we're still missing, oh, we don't have uh, Livy's group. Make sure you thank Livy's group and Hannah's group. Absolutely amazing. I don't know where they went, but um, oh, maybe they're getting donuts and coffee. That's a great thing to do. Get donuts and coffee after this. You need a donut to kind of give you some more energy. Are the rest of them coming in, Terry? Well, no, I mean, yeah, Terry, thank you. Silence is okay. Just like three more seconds. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, every team that helps lead worship while we're waiting for a worship pastor puts in an enormous amount of time practicing, picking songs that they know, and leading uh, is not an easy thing for anybody. It, a lot of people have fear of standing up in front of people talking, and for the teams to do this week in and week out, it is amazingly good and a blessing for us to receive their talents in such a way. So thank you very much. Make sure you thank Livy. Make sure you say, thank Hannah and all the other teams that put together uh, as far as the process on finding a worship pastor that helps with youth and children, we are in the mix of it. We have lots of resumes that we're going through and lots of contacts that we're making. Uh, so it would be nice and ideal if before the end of the year we had someone to present to you uh, for that role. Uh, we have been without a worship pastor for so long, and teams have just filled in week in and week out. I know that they are looking for a break at some point. Uh, so we hope to be able to give that to them shortly. So make sure you thank them, not just with a round of applause, but uh, a fist pump out in the, <laughs> in the grass after church. I know that their service is immensely valued by all of us. Uh, it takes a tremendous amount of work to put that off every week, and they do it without grumbling, complaining, with joy in their heart, and they can bring you special days like today, which is a little bit more country and bluegrass themed, but it gets the blood pumping. So... I think I've caught up now, my breath and my heart rate is down, so let's get into the message. Uh, so far in this series, we have looked at the culture wars that exist between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian and the non-Christian are radically different. While we live in this common world, while we live with common experiences, our nature is very different. Our goals are very different. Our purposes are different. And we have seen throughout this series how the word Christian is used, how it's defined, and how it's applied. We have seen, and we've quoted, remember St. Augustine's great quote, omnia ad gloriam de referendum est? 
How do we refer all things to the glory of God? We have been pressed with our goal being different than that of the unbeliever. We are to live our lives in a way that glorifies God above all things. It doesn't make us better than the world. It makes us radically different. We've even seen how politics enter into the fray and how we are to respect, honor, and pray for the leaders above us. Even when we disagree with them, we are bound to be obedient. And today, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 an incredible set of verses that are painful to go through. They are incredible verses because they speak to the nature of the world and what we are honestly fighting against. If the person, in whatever role they may be, a boss, they may be in the government, they may have authority over us, no matter what position they may have, if they are not a believer, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then somewhere deep down in their nature and their character, it is evil. It is evil. And 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter that he wrote to his, by this time, dear friend, but it used to be someone he mentored, Timothy, who went with him throughout almost every one of his missionary journeys as an apprentice, is finally on his own leading his own congregation for several years and receiving great instruction from Paul as he writes his last two letters of advice. And he tells us in verse, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, starting in verse 1, and you notice on the screen, I just have verses 1 through 9 because it's one beautiful big section that we're going to tackle together. He starts in verse 1 of chapter 3. But mark this. Make this a central point in your mind. Make sure you underline this, star this, highlight it, whatever you need to do, Timothy, whatever we need to do, make sure you understand this next point. Mark it. Jesus used to say, truly, truly, I say to you, and those should be stand-up words. Okay, I need to pay attention. Paul just simply says, mark this, notice this, this is important. And he goes on to say, there will be terrible times in the last days. Whenever the last days are, there will be terrible times. Now, when are the last days? Let's just open up a can of worms. When are the last days? Pretty much any time after Jesus ascended into heaven and said, in these last days, these things will happen. We've been living in the last days for almost 2,000 years until Christ returns. And Paul says, there will be terrible times in the last days. And then he goes on to describe the terrible times. And see if this doesn't somehow match our culture today. People will be lovers of themselves. <laughs> it's all about my self-care. It's all about me. It's all about my time. It's all about me, 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 me. They'll be lovers of themselves. Everything they do will have a passionate drive towards self-satisfaction. Me. Whether you call it the me generation, the millennial generation, the X generation, the Z generation, the greatest generation. Without Christ, their life is singly focused 
on what can I get out of it? What can I get out of my relationships? What can I get out of my family? What can I get out of my finances? What can I get out of my body? Me. It's me-driven, me-focused. Every bit of it. They will be lovers of themselves. Not only do they love themselves, but Paul says they will be lovers of money. Having money is no sin. Having money is no crime. Having money does not make you unchristian. It's the value you put on it. Is my life better with it or without it? Well, with it. I mean, you can take care of the basic necessities. But when your life becomes consumed with it, and you lose it, and your life feels like it's over because you don't have it, your heart was too attached to it to begin with. But they will be lovers of money. Their entire purpose will be money-driven. I change jobs because I get more money. I do this because I get more money. I do this because I have more money. I don't give because I want money. And they are all consumed with their bank accounts and retirement accounts and what kind of deals they can get. They love money. They will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, and they will be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. That almost kind of summarizes all of it. They're without love. You know, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only major world religion that focuses on love. Love is a motivator. Love is a comforter. All the other religions, and I, I challenge you to find one that this is not the case, all the other world religions are based on what you do, 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 what you do. Whether it be a list of rules you need to follow or self-denial. But love is absent. Love is fleeting. There's no sense of self-sacrificing love. There's self-denial, but there isn't a passionate love of God. There's a fear of their God, a desire to appease their God, or their God is just like you and it really doesn't matter. Their God is just a figurehead. But love is foundational to the Christian and in the Christian culture. Foundational. But in the last days, there will be people who do not love. They are unforgiving. That's a hallmark of Christianity. That's a hallmark of being a believer. Forgiving. Not holding grudges, not, not being slanderous and gossip towards others, but loving towards others. Not holding it over them, not bringing it up in every conversation, what you've done to me is so wrong, but there's a forgiveness forgiveness. There is a letting go of the pain and suffering that you have unfairly received by the actions of another. You forgive. You don't hold it against them. You forgive. But in the last days, people will be unforgiving. They will be unholy. Unforgiving. Slanderous without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, having nothing to do, have nothing to do with such people. Now we've already seen what Paul talked about being unequally yoked, both in business relationships and uh, romantic relationships. Don't be unequally yoked. Do not be tied to an individual who is an unbeliever because their goals and their purposes, their very nature, is contrary to godliness and holiness and love and forgiveness and mercy and tenderness. They have forms of it, but they don't exist in its reality. And Paul says yet again, don't have anything to do with these type of people. Now, it doesn't mean that we cloister ourselves because there was a very bad time in church history, and it's still present at some, in some places, but there was a bad moment in church history during the 3 and 400 AD where people in the church would read something like this, and their conclusion was, I have to go to a monastery. Because if I'm not to be tainted by the world, if I'm not to be influenced by the world, I have to separate myself from the world. And the best way to separate myself from the world is to go up onto a mountaintop, surround myself with citadel-type walls, and hide. And I'll do pious things. I'll read Scripture, and I will pray, and I will chant songs, but I will live by myself because I can't have anything to do with the world. God has never said to cloister yourself and hide yourself from the world. It says, don't be influenced by it. Don't have relationships with it. Don't embrace it and say, yeah, this is the best there is. There is a difference in how the believer interacts with the world. The world accepts it. The Christian looks at it and they are pained over it. They grieve over it. They see the hurt. They see the brutality. They see the lying. They see the deception. They see the hate. And they're pained over it. They mourn over it. They are grieved over it. I think one of the natural reactions that as humans we have to seeing something like the riots that have taken place, especially a couple months ago, there's an anger that happens, is there not? And there's an anger of the destruction of property, the lawlessness, the brutality of it, and just the the disregard for human life. And you become angry at such a thing. I think the believer moves from that anger to a moment of great sorrow for this reason. These people are lost. They're without a Christian influence in their life. They're without Christ. What a terrible place to be to be without Christ and trying to express something about injustice. And they have no idea that they go to God and God help the poor and needy, help those who are persecuted, help those who are unfairly treated. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and become brutal. And there should be a sorrow in the heart of the Christian towards them. Not just an anger that they should be punished for what they're doing, but a sorrow and a sadness for how lost they are. If you remember the week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I believe it's recorded in Matthew, he looks over the city at one of these plateaus as he's 
going into the city. And he weeps and cries. And says, I wish I could gather you under my wings, but you've rebelled against me. Christ wept over the city of Jerusalem when he saw how sin had gripped it and how gripped the people were with, at that time, their legalism, the rightness and wrongness of how you live, not according to God's word, but according to man's laws. I don't think there's ever been a time that we're living in right now where people feel like they are just and godly and holy and right and are the furthest things from it. Everyone is a champion warrior for a cause. Everyone needs to be a champion warrior for the cause or you become blacklisted. They're always champions for other causes, but they're never a champion for their relationship with God. And they pretend that they're righteous and holy and just and godly, but they're the furthest things from it. And Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. Don't hang out with them. Don't make them your best friends. Don't get into relationships with them where you are tied emotionally or physically. Avoid such people. What influence are they going to have in your life? And I know that you might say, oh, but Tim, I can have a great influence in their life. Are you? Are you having an influence in your life or are you just kind of going the path of least resistance and not bringing up Christianity? Don't have anything to do with such people. And then Paul describes him a little bit further in verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses during the Exodus, so these treacherers oppose the truth. They are men of deprived minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So Janus and Jambres were opposing Moses' revelation of God during the Exodus while they were wandering in the wilderness. And they spoke out against Moses. They caused derision within the camp. They questioned his leadership. They questioned his motives. Uh, they were part of the complainers that said, hey, we think that we should go back to Egypt because it was so much easier on us. You've brought us out here to die. They just stirred up strife and conflict everywhere they could and spoke in opposite of Moses. And Paul says, those individuals came by an untimely death. They were not righteous. They presented themselves as having all the knowledge and understanding of God, but they were far off from it. And they were judged harshly, and everyone in the camp knew their true nature when God revealed it. He says, you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be the one, and I love this way that Paul describes this, worming themselves into the house, worming themselves into an influence, Worms are 
basically baby snakes is the best I can describe it in my gross out factor. They're just baby snakes. Um, not as bitey, obviously, uh, but still, ugh. they serve a purpose. I know they serve God's beautiful purpose of making sure that things decay rightly to give us nutrients. I get that, but ugh, they're worms. And when we think of worms, we think of decay. Well, we might think of fishing, but when something has, is worm-infected, we generally go, okay, I'm not going to eat that. It's decayed, it's rotting. And Paul says, this is the way they influence you, is they worm their way in. And if they worm their way in, I don't want anything to do with it. Paul says, don't have anything to do with those people that are like that, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, uh, haters of love and forgiveness, and those that are boastful and pride and rebellious, uh, disobedience with their uh, parents, ungrateful, unholy, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not lovers of good, pretending they're good, but they're not good, pretending they love truth, but they hate it, pretending that they promote truth, but they actually tear it down, have nothing to do with it. They're like worms infecting you. And when worms infect you, there's rottenness there. I think Paul would say you got to get rid of that rottenness. Got to get rid of that influence. Let me give you a little secret here because I know myself and there is a part of me that listens to this reads this thinks about this and there is a part of me that goes that must be a pretty weak Christian to be so influenced by things like this because it's so clearly unbiblical beliefs and attitudes and feelings and emotions. So unbiblical. I am so far above being influenced like that. I can have friends that are non-believers and have great relationships with them. Shoot, I may even be able to marry someone who's an unbeliever. I can, I can handle that pressure. I'm strong enough in my faith. I'm here to tell you, you are not strong enough in your faith to handle those kind of relationships with those people. You are not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. The strong Christian knows that that's dangerous to have those kind of relationships and to have those kind of influences in their life. The strong Christian, the mature believer goes, no, I can't play with fire because I will get burned. As much as I think I can handle it, I can't. As much as you think you can handle it, you can't. That is maturity standing up and saying, I am not boastful in my ability. In fact, I am, in a sense, terrified that I try to act in my own ability. I need God's protection every step of the way in these relationships with the world because I know I am quick to adopt their attitudes. I remember being a, a, a new Christian and I was very zealous for the Lord. And um, this is before I went back to college. And I was hanging out with some people from my neighborhood that, were, that I hung out as a kid and in high school had bad times with them. And I thought I was going to um, just kind of show them how to be a Christian because my life had changed. And it radically had changed. Radically had changed. 
And so I'm hanging out with them pretty much on the street corner like I had done before. And uh, they started, uh, something happened, and they, they just started swearing. Uh, I, I don't remember what happened, but they just started swearing and cussing and uh, getting angry. And I found myself within five seconds of having a, um, a witness of following Christ and joining in with them. All within five seconds, it disappeared. And I was swearing and laughing and joking and being just as mean as they were without any difference. And I, I was shocked. Even one of the kids said something to me like, oh, so you're over that Christian thing now? I'm like, oh. Your witness can disappear so quickly. It can happen in five seconds. And you can think that you are so strong, you'll never engage in that. You'll never accept that behavior, that type of language. And before you know it, left on your own, you are weak and you can succumb to that temptation. If it happened to Peter, if it happened to Peter, a man who walked with Jesus for three years every day, had Jesus as his teacher, Jesus as his master, Jesus as his Lord. Jesus revealed to him that he was God incarnate on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw miracles walking on water. And if Peter could be so bold to say, I will not deny you, Lord. All the other disciples, they're weak. They will forget you, but not me. And Jesus goes, oh, I prayed for you, Peter that Satan would not take you to that place, but you will. Now, Peter had to be a strong disciple because, I mean, he was with Jesus 24-7 for three solid years. You cannot get better training and teaching than that. And he falls. And Jesus said, you're going to fall this way. I would have avoided that courtyard at every possibility. But no, walks right into the courtyard, hangs out with not the disciples, but with other people. And when the pressure came to, are you going to acknowledge Jesus or not, he fell. He fell. We cannot think we are the exception to this rule of don't hang out with these type of influences. We cannot think, but I have an exception. We've already seen that when we look at God's Word, we have those three possible reactions, don't we? We have the reaction of yes, with nothing else. We have the reaction of no, I don't believe it, I'm not going to follow it. But the scariest of all reactions is yes, but, when we add our own exceptions to God's Word. Paul doesn't say, if you are strong enough and mature enough as a believer, you don't have to worry about hanging out with unbelievers. Don't worry about it. No, he says everyone is included in this. Now, Paul still was in the home of unbelievers, witnessing to unbelievers, actively pursuing the unbeliever with the gospel, with words about Christ. Not just hanging out with them as friends, but presenting the gospel at every turn. That's our calling. That's our relationship with the world around us, calling them to repentance through Christ speaking the truth in love every single time. And so if you have a relationship in your life 
that you call dear friends, close friends. And you are waiting for the opportunity to bring Christ into the relationship. It's now. It's now. Because the world at this moment is absolutely dumbfounded on what to believe and how to believe it. They are confused. They are scattered. They are angry. They are fearful of the next day. And you have the answer of hope. You can present to them the words of eternal life. That's our relationship with the world. Not to be mixed among them and undefined and just kind of getting along, but actively being salt and light in their life. And some of them may say, I don't want anything to do with you. Well, good, because I don't want your influence in my life either, but I'm always here to pray with you, for you, and tell you about what God wants in our life. You don't have to break the relationship off and never see them again. But they should know that what comes first in your life is not sports, not the weather, not cars, not entertainment, not music, not movies, not vacations, not money, not politics, but Christ. They should know that about you. In the end, Paul, I think, at the very last part of that chapter, and I know we're going through this really quickly and not addressing every little nuance and word, but in the end, in the last part of chapter 3, I think he gives us our take-home. He gives us how to apply this. And he says very clearly, starting in verse 10, you, however, do know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Ikeum, Lystra, and the prosecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. He went into every one of those godless cities that were uh, seated with temple and idolatry every step of the way, and he presented Christ and almost died several times being stoned and being torn apart. And God rescued him every time. He went into there and addressed sin in a loving way with truth. And he was persecuted. Eventually, Paul will die for his standing in the faith and not compromising. And Timothy was there almost every one of those times. And so when Paul says, you saw how I reacted to the crowds, you saw how I presented the gospel, you saw how I loved and how I was persecuted, you are an eyewitness that I lived what I said, that I am going to make a stand for Christ. He says, in fact, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be immensely joyful. If you're reading around with me, it doesn't say immensely joyful. What does it say? Persecuted. Wow, I cannot think of a better, you know, what do they call those things when you get together at school in a gym and like a pepper rally? I can't think of a better pepper rally for the church than we're in Christ. We're going to be persecuted. What kind of tagline is that for marketing a church? Come join us. We're persecuted. Well, nowadays everyone kind of politically likes to be persecuted to be, you know, whatever. Okay, I'm not going to go there. But in Christ, we are indeed truly 
persecuted. Why are we persecuted? Oh, please don't be because you're obnoxious. Okay? Please don't be because you're mean-spirited with your words. Please don't because you're judgmental towards people and you tell them that. Be persecuted for the right reasons because you are in Christ Jesus. Because when they see you, they are convicted because God is God and they're not. Let them be convicted because you live a holy life before them with your actions and words, not with a pointed finger. Let them see Christ in you and hear Christ through your words, not just when you present the gospel, but when you talk about everyday life. Let them know Jesus is your master. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, again, not great news, they're going to get bad and they're going to get worse, deceiving and being deceived, lies is their factory, but as for you, here's where we apply this to take home, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those who, uh, from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's Paul's charge to us. His charge to us is as we live in this ungodly world where there are deceivers wanting to derail you and defund you, they want you gone. They don't mind if you come to a church on a Sunday morning, do your thing, and leave, but the moment you leave with Christ as your message, they hate it. And in history, they have persecuted it to the point of martyrdom, killing the Christian and the witness of Christ. It has not come to that here in America at this time. But it has happened throughout the world even today. And to think that we are immune to such a call to stand for your faith denies history and denies what God says about the last days. They will get worse and worse and worse. Therefore, make sure that you are a good student of God's Word because God's Word will take you everywhere you need to go. It will teach you all you need to know. It will teach you how to love and forgive, how to interact, how to stand firm, and how to die as a faithful servant of the King of kings and Lord of lords. As the band comes up and we're going to sing another song, let's pray. Stand. Stand with me and pray. Father, we are immensely grateful that you do not let us walk this life alone, but that you shield us and you have given us your Spirit to lead and guide us. May we depend upon him. May he lead us in how to speak with one another, how to treat one another, and how to interact with this world around us. Father, we do not want to be influenced by the world and follow the world's standards We have a higher standard. 
We have a higher calling to love and be truthful and to be righteous and to be honest. Help us, Father, to live that and protect us from the darts of the evil one. In Christ's name, all of God's children said, Amen.